0: I want to invite you, if you would, take your Bibles out and turn with me to the book of uh, Psalms, Psalm 147. Uh, our theme verse for Vacation Bible School this week will be verse 5, but uh, what I would like to do is read the Psalm from verse 1 all the way down verse 11 so we can uh, understand the context. I want to invite you also to to be praying for vacation Bible school this week, that God would indeed be at work all over the campus and the hearts of boys and girls, youth and adults. I want to remind you that we don't have vacation Bible school just for little people, but we've got it for big people too. Some people are, some of us are bigger than we need to be too, right? But uh, we've got we've got vacation Bible school for all ages, and it's amazing how we see God work. Uh, through Vacation Bible School each year, Touching Lives. And so we want to, uh, to ask you to be a part of that and especially be a prayer warrior uh, for us. Uh, would you stand for the reading of God's Word, please? Psalm 147, beginning in verse 1, the psalmist says, Praise the Lord, for it is good to sing praises to our God, for it is pleasant. And a song of praise is fitting. The Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers the outcasts of Israel. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. He determines the number of the stars. He gives to all of them their names. Great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. But the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear Him and those who hope in His steadfast love. Let's pray together. Father, we want to we thank You for Your awesome power that we see displayed all about us in the world today. God, we thank You for the power that we've witnessed as believers When your Holy Spirit moves upon our hearts and convicts us of our sin and draws us to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. You redeem us, you change our life. You forgive us of all of our iniquities and you set us free. And then God, the power of your presence every day in our lives to look after us and sustain us we look at creation all the created order and the sights that we see there and we're reminded again of your power and father we think, we think of what your word says about the future how one of these days how how you're making the kingdoms of this world the kingdoms of Jesus Christ that one of these days this world's going to wrap up as we know it And you're going to come back for your church. And Christians, we're we're going to be in your presence forevermore. God, it is your power that accomplishes all these things. God, I pray this week we would see your power at work, even sometimes in very quiet ways. Just as Aaron testified a moment ago about that Muslim leader who began reading the gospel, and as he was reading the gospel over time, your power was displayed in his life as you drew him to Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that stories like that would happen this week. That people would understand the good news and come to Jesus. Lord, I want to pray for those in our congregation right now who need your presence and power in their lives. That you would meet every need that they have. God, open our understanding and our hearts and minds to this passage of Scripture. Give us clarity of thought as we study it together. May the name of Jesus Christ be high and lifted up and we pray in His name. Amen. In his book, Who Needs God, Harold Kushner writes, The next time you go to the zoo, notice where the lines are the longest and people take most time in front of the cages. We He writes, he says, We tend to walk briskly past the deer and the antelope with only a passing glance at their graceful beauty. If we have children, we may pause to enjoy the antics of the seals and the monkeys. But we find ourselves irresistibly drawn to the lions, the tigers, the elephants, the gorillas. Why? I suspect that without realizing or understanding it, we're strangely reassured at seeing creatures bigger and stronger than ourselves. It gives us the message at once humbling and comforting that we're not the ultimate power. Our souls are so starved for that sense of all that encounter with grandeur which helps to remind us of our real place in the universe that if we can't get it in church, we'll search for it and find it someplace else. Or at least we'll try. Folks, as we come to Psalm 147, we're reminded at once of the power of God. And we see in this psalm that God's power is celebrated because He's our Creator. He's the Creator of everything that we look around and see in the world in the created order. It reminds me of Genesis 1 and 2 where the Bible says God God said by His spoken word, God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that it was very good and through all the days of creation, God simply spoke and it was so. And we see God in the, uh, the creation narratives, then displaying all of His wonders and all of His power. He created the sun and the moons and all, the, the sun and the moon and, and the stars and, and the stars are countless and yet He calls them all by name. God's power is great. But at the same time, God is gentle. This psalm that talks about the greatness of God also says that God lifts up the humble and He makes the grass to grow on the hillsides and He feeds the beast of the field and He even gives food to the young ravens. Now this week in Vacation Bible School, we're going to see both of those aspects of God's nature. We're going to see His power. The lessons are going to take us to various locations on the earth where tourists stand and and they gaze at the awesomeness of the created order and, and we're reminded of what a mighty God that we serve. And at the same time, we learn of His watch care over us. And so here's a psalm which reminds us of the various ways that God acts. And we see that in each of those ways that he acts and in each of those different attributes of God, none of each of those diminishes or cancels out the other. God is both great in his power, awesome in his power, and at the same time gentle in his watch care. The greatness and gentleness of God. I want you to see three things with me this morning First of all, I want you to notice that God's power is seen in His work in behalf of His children We Read with me again verses 1 and 2 The psalmist says, Praise the Lord for it is good to sing praises to our God For it is pleasant and a song of praise is fitting The Lord builds up Jerusalem, He gathers the outcasts of Israel Now the context of these verses it's believed is when God regathered Judah after their exile to Babylon for 70 years. Now if you're acquainted with your Old Testament history you'll remember that after Solomon's death Rehoboam, his son, came to the throne. And you'll remember what Rehoboam did. Rehoboam promised that he was going to tax the people even more heavily than his father had. He was going to put huge burdens on them even though they asked for some relief. And and they sent messengers to him to ask him for some relief. And he said, go away and I'll think about it and come back and I'll give you my answer. And when they came back, he said, if you think my father's hand was strong on you, one of my fingers is going to be more oppressive to you than my father's whole body. And so immediately Jeroboam said, Away to your tents, away to your homes, Israel. And what Jeroboam did was lead uh, ten tribes of Israel to break off from two tribes of Israel. And and they went up north forming Israel and the two southern tribes stayed in the south and became Judah. And, And so what we have... Uh, beginning with the death of Solomon and the reign of his son, is the divided kingdom. You can read through just any simple Old Testament history or or timeline, and uh, you may be confused by what's going on there. You'll see the united kingdom and then the divided kingdom, but folks, that's what's going on when Jeroboam and the ten tribes split off from Rehoboam and the two tribes, and they became uh, the, the, the divided kingdom. Well, the ten tribes were up in the north, and because of jealousy and because of fears, Jeroboam did not want, The people of those ten tribes going back down to Jerusalem and worshiping and sacrificing. And so what Jeroboam had the audacity to do was to set up uh, pagan altars and to set up golden calves. Just like the golden calf they had worshipped when they came out of Egypt. And the people of the northern kingdom got so caught up in idolatry. And corruption that finally in Old Testament history, God brought the Assyrians in and they just completely wiped out the northern kingdom. Well, you would think Judah and the southern kingdom would have learned their lesson by seeing what happened to the northern kingdom, but they didn't. They continued in the same way as their northern brothers and sisters. Now God didn't utterly destroy them because God had promised that the Messiah was going to come through the line of David, one of the uh, and, and that was uh, part of the southern kingdom, the tribes in the southern kingdom. And so God preserved them, but God disciplined them. And He disciplined them by taking them into captivity in Babylon. There was a day that Nebuchadnezzar, the king of the Chaldeans, or the king of the Babylonians, came in and he overran the southern kingdom. He, he overran Judah and they killed many of the people but they took many of them away into exile for 70 years. And we learn about this in the Bible reading books like the book of Daniel where we see that the, the Babylonians came in and took, they took the cream of the crop of the young people away to Babylon. God disciplined them. Folks, what happened to Israel and Judah ought to be a testimony to you and me today that God does indeed judge sin. The wheels of justice may grind slowly, as somebody has said, but they grind surely. Sooner or later, there is a payday someday. It's true of individuals and it's true of nations. Well, just as God said He would do after 70 years, God brought them back to their land to rebuild the land, to rebuild Jerusalem, to rebuild the temple. The book of Nehemiah talks about that great rebuilding project. Well finally the walls were rebuilt, the city was rebuilt and the temple was rebuilt and there were great times of celebration and worship. You can read Nehemiah, you can read Ezra and Haggai and Zechariah. Those are some of the great books of the Old Testament to read and study that talk about the different elements and dynamics of this rebuilding process. But What I'm getting at, what I want you to understand this morning, is that's the context to this psalm. They've been away in exile for 70 years. They've been out of their homeland. They've been out of Jerusalem. They've not had the opportunity to go to the temple there in Jerusalem and make sacrifice and, and pray and, and sing praises to God and worship. But now they've come back into the land and, and the temple's been rebuilt and, and these great times of celebration are going on. And look at what God says to them in verse 1. He says, Praise the Lord for it is good to sing praises to our God, for it is fitting, and a song of praise is fitting. The Lord builds up Jerusalem, He he gathers the outcast of Israel. Folks, just think if you had not had the opportunity to go and worship for all these years like you had been accustomed to. And suddenly you're back in your homeland and and, and you're able to go to the temple and you're able to worship. What a a joyous privilege it would be. And and verse 1 is telling us that's how it's supposed to be in the life of a believer when we reflect on God's power at work in His children. God's people are to worship, we're to sing praises to God. Worship is fitting, it it is an appropriate response to God's work among His people. The Bible says, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Now most people don't go that far, but you know what, oftentimes people live as practical atheists, don't they? They don't give God the worship that is due His name. Worship means we ascribe worth to God because we recognize who He is. He's the Redeemer, the Creator, the Redeemer, the Sustainer, the Judge, the Shepherd. And we come into the house of God and and we sing praises to God and we read His Word and we study and we fellowship together and, and we minister to one another and we go out in the world and we tell people about Jesus. Why? Because God is worthy. God is worthy of our worship. What a shame that so many people today neglect worship in their personal life and in their corporate life. A.W. Tozer once wrote a book that is still considered today a classic. It's entitled, Whatever Happened to Worship? The book begins, it opens by saying, Christian churches have come to the dangerous time predicted long ago. It is a time when we pat one another on the back, we congratulate ourselves, and we join in together in the glad refrain, we're rich, we're increased with goods, and we stand in need of nothing. But folks, just the opposite is true. We need to see our sinfulness and our our need of God. We we need to recognize His awesome power to, to transform us. We need to worship. God has taken us from the pits of hell. He's redeemed us. He's set us free. He's reconciled us to Himself through the blood of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And He's given us a future and a hope. If God's people do not recognize that in worship, then there is something deeply wrong in our walk with Christ. We're told here that worship is good, it is pleasant, it is comely, it is fitting. I can't imagine a Christian failing to come to the house of God and worship corporately with other believers. I don't think a person who takes his walk with God seriously would ignore to worship. Again, privately or corporately. In fact, do you understand what the Bible is saying? To fail to worship is actually an act of rebellion. It is a step of disobedience. It's disobedience to God. You see, it's presented here in these first two verses not as an option, not as a suggestion. In the Hebrew, what the writer is doing is he's giving us commands. We are to go to the house of God. We're to sing praises to God. We're to shout hallelujah. The Bible says we clap our hands. We take the instruments. We make joyful noises. We sing together courses of praise to God and we recognize who God is. That we have not made ourselves. He's our creator and we're the sheep of His pasture and He is worthy of all of our worship. And as we reflect on his power in human history and what he's done in behalf of his children. Folks, worship ought to just grow naturally out of our hearts. It's not something that we ought to have to be forced to do. We ought to want to go to the house of God and worship. We ought to want to go to our private devotion times and read the Word of God and pray and sing praises to God. That's what a redeemed heart does. The Bible says, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. I love the way some of the old Puritans used to put things. They had a way with words. The great Puritan preacher George Swinnock said on one occasion, he said, Prepare to meet thy God, O Christian. Betake thyself to thy chamber on the Saturday night. The oven of thine heart thus baked as it were overnight would be easily heated the next morning. The fire so well raked up when thou wentest to bed would be the sooner kindled when thou shouldest rise. If thou wouldest thus leave thy heart with God on the Saturday night, thou shouldest find it with him in the Lord's day morning. We're to worship. And again, that's what he's saying. Praise the Lord. It's good to sing praises to our God for it is pleasant and a song of praise is fitting it's pleasant it just it does something to our hearts doesn't it I tell you what, when you miss church on Sunday, when you miss church on Wednesday, don't you just feel like there's something missing in your life? There's something you've not done. When you you miss reading the Bible that day, when you miss your prayer time, when you miss your devotion time, there's just something that's missing in your life. It's good, it's fitting, it's pleasant to come before God. The second thing we're being reminded of here God's greatness is celebrated in His work of healing human hearts. Read with me verses 3 through 6. He says, He heals the brokenhearted, binds up their wounds. He determines the number of the stars. He gives to all of them their names. Great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. The Lord lifts up the humble. He casts the wicked to the ground. Judah had been a broken nation. They were devastated. You see, folks, many of them had lost loved ones. Other ones had, lost, had loved ones displaced. When Nebuchadnezzar came in and overran the land and captured some of them and take, took them off uh, to, uh, to Babylon, remember how long they were going to be there? They were going to be there for 70 years. And you know what that meant? That even if your loved one or you yourself, had, your life had not been taken, if you were separated by all of those miles, guess what? There were going to be a lot of people in your family and among your, your group of friends you were never going to see alive again. They were devastated, they were heartbroken, they were in great sorrow. The warfare and exile Judah went through tore the very heart out of the nation. Hearts were broken. This past week at the Southern Baptist Convention in New Orleans, on Thursday after all the convention meetings were over, I went through the World War II museum that was just a couple of blocks away from, from the convention hall. Everybody was talking about it, how, how great and, and uh, just a powerful testimony this, this new museum was. And, and so I decided to go there one day and, and without a doubt it's probably the single best museum of any type I've ever been through. Never before have all the pieces of World War II been so completely tied together in my mind. You, you walk out of there feeling like you understand all the different dynamics that were at work in, in the war. And you kind of understand what was going on in the, in the European theater and also in the, in the Pacific theater and all the different personalities. And all the different power plays, and all the things that were that were going on, and then outside the museum, as you walk across to the 4D theater, there's all these. Uh big uh, rows of these concrete and steel barriers and they're not replicas they're the actual barrier when Hitler uh, built that massive long Atlantic wall because he knew coming in from the Atlantic that the allied forces were going to come into Europe somewhere along the Atlantic and so he put up all of those German bunkers aimed out there, the guns aimed at the sea And, and between those bunkers and the sea that Atlantic Atlantic wall that he built, that massive concrete and steel structure with all those hazards in it. They have some of those actual things there at that museum. Some of you have loved ones that were a part of that D-Day invasion on Normandy Beach. If you've seen Saving Private Ryan, that movie, that opening scene of of Saving Private Ryan where all those ships are going in and they're landing there on the beach against the Germans and they're firing down on them and and it was a a massacre. But finally the Allied troops were able to break uh, through some of that Atlantic wall and and get a foothold in Europe and begin marching uh, into France and finally into Germany and and, and victory, of course, over Hitler. But again probably the best museum I've ever seen you go into that 4d movie uh, movie theater 48 48 minute 4d movie I don't think I've ever been to a 4d movie and all those battles I mean it's like you're sitting there right there in the middle of all those World War II battles that were going on 65 million lives lost 65 Million lives lost. Half a million right here in this country. And you think how the hearts of nations were ripped out be- because of this dictator. And some of his other cohorts like Mussolini and of course what Japan was doing, all because of that and his plan to march against the world. You think of all these nations that were torn apart and all these lives that were lost and family members who lost sons and daughters, families who were ripped apart, heartbroken people. Folks, you have to understand, that's the way Judah was feeling. They had been through a lot of that. Their land was gone. Their livelihood was gone. Their children were missing. Many of them were dead. Their their families were broken apart. Nebuchadnezzar and his army had completely destroyed everything about their land. Your heart's broken, but what did God do? God kept his promises and he brought them back. Look at verse 3. It says, he heals the brokenhearted and he binds up their wounds. Verse 5 talks about God's understanding in all of this, his plan and his purposes, his power to accomplish it all, to achieve his purposes. He's able to do it all and he's able to lift up the humble. He's able, for as verse 4 says, He's the one who even created all the stars and gave them all a name. And so God was able to work His purposes in the hearts of His people and bring them back into the land. After He disciplined them, He brought healing to their lives. Folks, aren't you glad that God is still in the healing business? And I'm not just talking about the physical. God takes a human heart. He's able to redeem it, heal it, bind up the wounds and bring joy where once there was only sadness. Maybe that's your story today. God took your life that was going nowhere fast. God saved you, filled you with His Spirit. Put your feet back on solid ground again. And today you're able to come to this place and you're able to worship and you're able to sing praises to His name. God took the woman at the well, changed her life. The woman caught in adultery changed her, took James and John and Simon Peter. They were fishermen and God set them on a whole new path for their lives. God took the apostle Paul. He took people in the Old Testament like Naaman who had a death sentence over his life and God healed him and gave him a whole new purpose in his life. He changes men from the inside out. Ladies and gentlemen, that's what redemption is all about. Conversion is not simply about having your name on a church roll. Conversion is that miracle that God does in the heart of somebody when when His Holy Spirit, He, He burdens us. He convicts us of our sin. We see our desperation and our inability to save ourselves. We can't climb our way up to God and then we understand what God has done for us in Jesus Christ and we look to Christ and Christ alone for our salvation and God makes us a new creation in Christ. All things are passed away, behold all things have become new. That's conversion. Conversion is a miracle from God. It's something that you and I can accomplish It's it's the work of God. And I think of how God does that in the hearts of men and women. Don't you remember that day He did it in your own life? I think of one of our SBC leaders in his story, of what God did in his life. Johnny Hunt, many of you love to hear Johnny Hunt preach. He, he pastors that little mission church down in Woodstock, Georgia. That little mission church we've got, you know, this morning they'll probably have about 8,000 active in attendance. Johnny Hunt's from eastern North Carolina. He was a Lumbee Indian. Grew up rough. Grew up without a daddy. The daddy abandoned the family. They were were dirt poor. To say they're dirt poor, that's even exaggerating. They were worse than dirt poor. His mama struggled to to, to support herself and her children. He grew up in, in government projects. Grew up rough. In his teenage years, he started working in a pool hall. He's got a book out from the pool hall to the pulpit. And boy, he was rough in that pool hall. He was a fighter and a scrapper. And I mean, he got into a little bit of everything. And for some reason, one day, I mean we know why it wasn't a coincidence for some reason one day he and his wife one Sunday morning went to church and they heard the gospel preached and on Sunday afternoons Johnny would always take his his car. He had a car built for the drag strip and he'd always go out to the drag strips on on Sunday and he he would race all day on Sunday. Sunday afternoon and Sunday evening and and just kind of carouse around with all his racing buddies out there. But that one afternoon after they'd been to church he told his wife he was packing up everything they were leaving early and she said what are you doing he said I'm going back to church tonight that preacher was talking to me this morning and I need to go back this evening because something's going on in here he went back that night and he got saved God changed his life The work of conversion, the miracle of conversion, the miracle of redemption. Folks, that's what God does. That's the business that He's in. He heals the brokenhearted. He can redeem you and heal you. And when He does, you and I need to worship. He told the woman at the well in John 4, The Father seeks those who will worship Him in spirit and in truth. The psalmist goes on to say here that his understanding is beyond measure. Folks, there is nothing that God does not know. Jesus said, even the very hairs on your head are numbered. God knows everything completely and instantly. Has it ever dawned on you that nothing ever dawns on God? God knows all things fully. He's omniscient. His understanding is infinite. It is beyond measure. When we face problems in life, when we need wisdom, we don't have to wait on God to call together some heavenly counsel of the angels and look out at the angels and say, Uh, What would you guys do? What do you think I ought to do? What's the answer to this scenario? God doesn't have to say to us, Hey, wait just a minute, put put life on hold because I need to go study up on what you're facing. I need to learn all about this so I can come back and let you know what to do. No, what's Paul say in Romans 11? That no one has ever become God's counselor. We can be confident that as we seek the face of God concerning any issue in our life, God knows our situation. He knows what we need. He knows when we need it. And He knows how we need it. Romans 8 says, even when we go before God in prayer, verse 26 of Romans 8, sometimes we get before God in prayer and in our human weakness and frailty. And our finiteness, oftentimes we go before God and we don't even know how we ought to pray as we ought. And he tells us that his Holy Spirit who searches the mind and the heart of God, searches the heart and mind of God, knows it completely, knows our heart and mind completely and is able to match up God's will with our need to answer our prayer completely. We might be praying over a situation one way, God answers it another way because of His infinite wisdom and knowledge. Folks, when we see God doing this in our lives, when we see God taking this kind of watch care over our lives to heal the brokenhearted, to redeem us, what should that do within us? It ought to cause us to worship. So we see what God's done in the world, His power there, His power among nations, His power among His collective body, and all the things He's done in behalf of His children, in behalf of the church today. We, we, we look out across our, uh, our combined history and we see His power. We see His footprints in the sand first collectively, and we worship. And then we look at how what God's done in our individual lives and see His footprints in our lives. And we worship Him. Thirdly, God's power is witnessed in His gentle care of all things He has made. Beginning there in verse 7, he says, Sing to the Lord with thanksgiving. Make melody to our God on the lyre. He covers the heavens with clouds. He prepares rain for the earth. He makes grass grow on the hills. He gives to the beasts their food and to the young ravens that cry. His delight is not in the strength of the horse, nor is pleasure in the legs of a man, but the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him and those who hope in his steadfast love. Here's yet another reason why we're to worship God and sing praises to Him. We're to sing to Him with thanksgiving, he says, and even bring the musical instruments into worship. Why? Because of what God has done around us every day, even in nature. Theologians call that common grace. Now, common grace is not saving grace. Common grace, even unbelievers know what common grace They experience common grace every day whether they realize it or not. We got up this morning and, and we experience common grace. You looked out your window or door and what did you see? You saw the sunshine. God gives rain to the earth. God brings forth the harvest. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, God makes His, His sun to shine on the just and the unjust. He makes, His, he makes His rain to fall on the just and the unjust. Folks, that's common grace. Just the way God looks after the created order. He talks here about how God even he even feeds the little ravens, the, the, the little baby birds and the ravens. God even takes care of them and supplies them with what they need. And the rain and the sunshine that makes the grass to grow and all the beasts of the field are fed. They have something to eat. They have sustenance. I tell you what, when you you look about in the world and, and you see this vast created order and how God looks after everything, folks, it's amazing, isn't it? The little birds and the animals, they can't get out their debit card and go down here to Food Line like you and I do and run their debit card through and buy their groceries or go to Walmart. It's got to be out there in nature. God supplies all that. Amazing. When you stop and think about how varied the the, the animal kingdom is and all that's out there and how God looks after all of them. I was reminded again of that this week in in, uh, New Orleans. After the convention was over, we took a day and a half to see a few things around that area. I mean, after all, you don't get down there every every year. Some things to see along the Gulf. And and one of these things I wanted to do, you ever seen that show, Swamp People? (laughs) I wanted to take an airboat ride. Go out in them swamps. So I did that. Got on that airboat. Powered by a 454 big block Chevy. I just knew we were going to get out in that swamp and break down. A Ford airboat would have to come tow us in. Isn't that right, Tom Redden? Get out in those... Boy, you get out in those swan, all those cypress trees growing up, all that Spanish mo- all those little canals and all. Man, you get back in there and you thought, man, the world will never see me again. I'm going to get back in here and get lost. You wonder how those guides, but our guide grew up there doing that all his life. Back in those canals, he knew it all. To see all the alligators, the snakes, the turtles, the fish, the insects, the birds. Man, what an ecosystem. You just hope you're not going to be in the food chain that day. <laughs> and they've got it down with the little gators and the big gators. Them little gators, they pull up back in them canals and they get their bag of marshmallows out, big old marshmallows, and they toss them in the water. And in that ca- he ca- that Cajun call... Uh, he, uh, it sounds like they got something in their mouth and can't enunciate. He, he had this Cajun call, and, and sure enough, them alligators would start coming up. You know why? Because those, those tour guide companies like that, they've conditioned them gators when they hear them airboats and, and hear that call. They come up because it's dinner time. And they throw them marshmallows in the water, and boy, all them alligators go over there and attack those marshmallows, get them. We went out in the water, a larger part of the canal, and there's this floating marsh, just grass and flowers and all that, just kind of like a floating island. And he got out of the boat and stepped down in that and mired mired halfway up to his knees, started doing that Cajun call. He said, if this is a big one, here's where we're going to see it. He's going to come from that direction. And sure enough, we all looked up, and man, it looked like, after about five minutes of waiting on, it looked like a submarine coming at us. 10 or 11 foot gator 8 or 900 pounds massive gator and it got right up on that marsh with him and he got out raw chicken and just started feeding that thing raw chicken and scratching it under its mouth feeding it chicken but I say all that just to say go back in that see all that man what, what, a, what a varied ecosystem just amazing. Guess what, folks? God looks after it all. God provides for it all. His gentle care, just just his warm, gentle care—the way he takes—he looks after his created order every day. Ought to cause us to do what? To worship. His power, those grand things we see in the created order, those grand things we look back on in our lives and we see what God's done in us. I mean, those really big things where, wow, those things ought to cause us to worship. And then just the little quiet things. Quiet things that nobody would ever write a book about. But just those little ways every day. God looks after us. All to cause us to what? To worship. Look at how the psalmist closes this section. Here we're impressed with this great God that we serve. But folks, the question is, what impresses God? Is it powerful men running around the world? Is it... Is it, he says here, the strength of the horse? Is it those big powerful things in the world that impress God? And and all the wisdom and ingenuity of of men and all the inventions of men and how great some men think they are. Is is that what impresses God? No. Because after all, the greatest and most powerful among us up next to God is nothing. Some of our world leaders need to hear that, don't they? Somebody needs to ask them, when's the last time you created a solar system and looked after it? What impresses God? He he says right here, in response to the greatness of God, we simply need to love Him and fear Him and worship Him and walk humbly before Him. Ladies and gentlemen, that's what God is looking for in men. He's looking for men who will trust Him and praise Him and let Him move and work in and through their lives. So this week, on a journey with us let's celebrate the wonders of God we'll see God's power displayed in so many ways but especially we'll see how God takes a human heart and does what only He can do and who knows it may be your heart that He changes let's pray Father, we do thank you today for your awesome power. Big, dramatic things we see in the world, we see in history, things that you've done. The stories we read about in the Bible, the walls of Jericho that come tumbling down, the sun that stood still while the battle was raging the Red Sea parting, the the mighty things you've done in behalf of your people. The formation and the building up of the church, the body of Christ. Miracles. But we also see you working in the quiet ways. I think of when Elijah was to go and be there in the cleft of the rock, and he saw all the mighty things, and God wasn't in it, but then he heard this still, small voice. Just the whisper. God, we think how much that applies to us. Because we usually don't see those big, dramatic things, but each of us every day could testify just to those quiet ways that you direct our steps. God, I pray that we would be a people who would learn to trust and depend upon you. And not say that we believe in you and praise you and then live our lives as practical atheists. May we worship you in spirit and in truth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, do you need Christ? It's no accident that you've come to this place. You remember that story of Zacchaeus that we read about so oftentimes in Bible school. Zacchaeus who climbed that tree to see Jesus, he was seeking Jesus. But what did Zacchaeus find that day? He found that day when he was seeking God. God was seeking him. This morning, is your heart heavy and convicted? You you need God and you know it. You, You need to be saved. You need to be converted. Guess what? That's God working on your heart. That's God showing you His favor. The Bible says, today if you hear His voice, do not harden your heart. Come to Him. I'd love to pray with you down front. Do you need a church home, a a family of other brothers and sisters in the Lord where you can worship and minister together? Step out of the pew where you're seated. Come forward. I'd love to pray with you about that. Is worship daily a part of your life? If not, then then I trust that you can see this morning from this psalm how far you have removed yourself from God's will on this issue. We've experienced the power of God, the presence of God, redemption. How marvelous that is. The greatest miracle of all, the conversion of a heart. Every day in your life and my life, we need to worship. We need to come together corporately and worship. Maybe this morning you need to make a commitment in your heart. God, I need to get back to that. That's about as basic as it gets. I've been guilty of living my life just as a practical atheist. Getting up, going about my day, and unless it's Sunday, not even thinking that much about my walk with Christ. Maybe that's what you're saying to yourself right now. Dedicate yourself to day-by-day worship and praise, ascribing worth to God because of what He's done in your life. Make that commitment this morning.